0: Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we as examine it, show us what you would want us to see from this, and we ask your spirit to lead. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verse 15. This you know, that all they that are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom is Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesimus, Nisiphos, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy in the Lord in that day, and, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, you know well. So we're going to take a look at this as Paul is changing his tone a little bit at this point. And there's a small bit of complaint here. Uh, that, he, that he's going through, and he says, you know that all they in Asia be turned away from me. He's feeling very lonely. He's, you know you can hear a hint of I'm so, you know, feeling sorry for myself. All my friends, all the people that have been you know that I've ministered to, those who would be supposed to be ministering to me are no longer looking to me. Now they are of course in Asia and he is in Italy. Uh, So there's a lot of distance there. It's not like they can make a phone call or mail letters to him. They can't email to him, Uh, but none of them are making an active effort to reach out to him. So have they all turned away or is he just in a pity party at this time? A lot of people don't want to picture Paul having a pity party, but he was human. I I think he was. You know, yes, I think people did turn from him. The Roman church definitely turned from him, he had trouble with them, but he was kind of feeling sorry for himself, you know, and, and I can almost picture that. Here he is in prison, nobody's visiting him, and he's like, where is everybody? How many times have I poured into these people's lives and nobody is coming to see me? Nobody's writing me, and we can't even be sure that nobody wrote him because he's in prison. Now, they could have been writing him and the letters not getting to him. We don't know. His attitude was that everybody has abandoned me. And he names two of them specifically, Vigelius and Hermogenes. Now, we have no idea who they are because it's the only place they're mentioned in the Bible. I don't know who they are. We don't know anything about them. But he specifically names these two people and says they have been worst of all. When you say it about the guy being ashamed of his change, why, 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 would, why would he be ashamed of his change? Well, some of it is that they were just afraid that if they uh, were with him, they would be put to death with him. Remember, Nero was, is, uh, is Caesar at this time, and, C- and Nero is putting everybody to death. So there are people, that, and there could be a very good reason why they're afraid to go see Paul. If I associate myself with Paul... I might not get out of that jail cell, <laughs> and I may find myself on a pole being burnt or being beheaded. So there is good reason that people are not wanting to be with with Paul at this time. What happened when the, when Jesus died? What did the disciples do? They hid. Why? they have been walking with Jesus for four years. And people are excited that Jesus is dead. So very much, though, so they're looking at, well they went after Jesus, our leader, we might be next. So they hid. So there is good reason why people naturally would do this. Paul has got a death sentence on it. They're just waiting to kill him. Nero is killing Christians left and right. If we go and associate ourselves with Paul, we might just find our heads on the chopping block as well. We just want to keep our, keep our head low and keep out of sight. So there could be a legitimate reason people are abandoning him. Now, is it good? No, it's still not good. But it's understandable from human nature. Now, we're not going up there and seeing Paul. We might, we might get the same treatment he's getting, same treatment as all these other Christians all around us are getting, and they're being. And remember, Nero's famous for his torture of the Christians. Uh, he liked dipping them in tar and burning them as land, uh, as lights for the for the circus. All right, and for the lining the roads and everything uh, he wasn't a nice man, so people are probably abandoning Paul on one side, you know not, not going anywhere near him you know, it means a means a very big problem if we go near him and Nisviros, he says he oft refreshed him, so there is at least one person coming to to Paul, and he says he even sought me out in Rome, all right. Uh, and to follow after him, to, to seek after him. He was really ministering to Paul. And this is something we need to be able to understand. Sometimes we need to just minister to people who are kind of down and out that are feeling bad and a little bit of ministering goes a long ways. To reach out and touch somebody to help them in some way. And it's hard sometimes and Paul is saying, at least one person's coming to see me. And he'd sent Timothy away. he had sent Timothy to Ephesus to take care of some problems at Ephesus. And he'd sent Titus away. So the two that he really loved and cared, and he knew that if they were there, they'd be in there with him, not caring about the possibility of death. He'd sent them away to minister elsewhere. And he's feeling very lonely. Now, we don't know if... Luke was sent away or not. We don't see Luke being mentioned in these books. Uh, Luke's stories end long before this period of time, so we don't know what's happened to Luke, who was his physician. Uh, There's no question about that. Uh, But he's feeling very lonely. And we probably would have been too. Especially in Paul's case, because he's ministered. He'd spent his whole adult life, you know, later life as a teacher, building churches, ministering to churches, sending, sending out letters to churches, preaching to churches. And when he finds himself in need, it's basically out of sight, out of mind. Sorry, Paul, we're not coming anywhere near you. And so he does feel a little sorry for himself. You know, I poured into all these people's lives. Where are they when I need help? And this is the problem that we have as human beings is we get so self-centered. Uh, you know, I did all of this for all these people and now nobody's doing anything for me. And this is something that is very dangerous attitude. And then it comes to, if you're, if that is our attitude, why? what was our motive for pouring into people? Was it just get them to owe us? You know, uh, and I'm sure he wasn't doing it at that, at that point, but Satan was getting into him. Look at all you did to these people and now. None of them want to be around you. And we've all been there where we've had a friend that we've, cared for, done things for, and then get to the place where when we need some help, they don't help us, and Satan really takes it and hammers us on that. Oh, well, you know, look at all you did for them. They should, be, they should be bending over backwards for you. I think that's where Paul's at at this moment. I don't think he's gone totally down this way, but he's, he's in this place where he's going, I am hurting, and nobody's here. Look at all the people I poured into, poured into, and nobody's here. And, you know, we, you know I, and I've talked with many people, they go, well, you know, I hate to think of Paul as a, as a weak, weak person. Well, I'm sorry, he was a human being. <laughs> you know, yes, he was great. You know, he did a lot of things that nobody else has probably done ever since. Taking his life in his hands and being willing to give it up with no problem. But he was still a human being. And here we're seeing the hurt that he's experienced. And again, don't know if it's real legitimate hurt if it's just Satan really getting on him. He's in a pity party, uh, he's in prison. The only people he, the only people he has as constant companions are the guards that are chained to him, who he gets to preach to all the time. <laughs> uh, but he's still somebody that's saying, "I really want somebody to minister back." And this is hard sometimes when you're leading and everything, some people forget that you need the ministering as well. And this is where Paul's at. He's like, I need to be ministered back to where, where, where are the people to minister to me? And this is something that is important. And yet Paul is suffering at this point. And it's hard when you're, you're a leader like Paul, where you were leading the church and looked like you didn't need a whole lot of help. Then people don't even know when you do need help, and this is one of the things that—not saying this because I'm lonely or anything—but a lot of pastors end up in this way. They, everybody looks at them as the leader. Sometimes they're afraid to invite the the pastor out to any activities because they're afraid the pastor is going to judge them if they if they act like they're human beings. Uh, and there's a line in one of the movies that I want the the pastor's wife was invited out with a couple, couple of ladies of the church and she looked at them and said this is the first time in nine years that any lady has invited me out to something like this. Now having been in this type of position I know that that's a true statement. Pastors and pastor's wives and sometimes even pastor's kids do not get included in activities like that quite often. Why? Well a lot of it's fear you know. What, you know, what if I slip and say something or do something that the pastor's not going to approve or the pastor's wife's not going to approve of? And you know, I don't want to look like a, a heathen in front of the in front of them. You know, I understand from both sides on it what what's going on, but there is a reality that we need to recognize that our leaders are human, and they need the same things that. Everybody else is because everybody comes to the, the leader saying, I need, help, I need 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 answers. Well, unfortunately, that leader is a human being as well. And they need to make sure that they have an outlet for the same, for the same thing. Um, and here's Paul going in this saying all of this. He says, when he, when he was in Rome, he sought me out diligently. The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in, in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, you know very well. So he's reminded Timothy, take care of him. You know, he's ministered to me. He's continued to minister to me. Make sure you take care of, of, this, of this man. And this is so much important for every one of us. Do we reach out to minister to people in the church? Sometimes that's just being a friend. Might be helping them. Maybe you have a skill that they don't have. Uh, I had, uh, at my house, my front steps leading up into my house were falling apart and my, one of my friends found out about it and about six guys from the church came over and they built me an entire new, new steps and deck in front of my house, which now needs to be looked at because uh, it was about nine, nine, ten years ago, but they just came, showed up one day with all the stuff to, to build a small deck and a, and a new set of steps. You know, and it's like, wow! Thank you guys. You know, I would have never been able to afford it, and I didn't have the skills to do it. I was just looking to buy a, a, a couple of ris- ris- riser and place some boards across it. You know, that was about what I was going to do, and that probably wouldn't have held together as long as this deck did. These guys knew what they were doing, and they just reached out and did something. Uh, I've had people that have helped with my car and stuff. Just saying. You know, I noticed, I've heard this noise in your car, and I want to fix it. Uh, you know, what do people do and reach out? Are we re, are we taking the skills that we know how to do, and reaching out to people to help them? And it's very important for that to happen. And this is what Paul's saying: nobody's reaching back, and except for this one man. And I think he was kind of down in the dumps. You know, you, we probably would be too. He's gone from house arrest to imprisonment in the prison, and their prisons back then weren't nice places. Uh, you know, so he's in the dark, he's in the, in the, the you know, uh, stinky dungeon part, parts of things, and he's not in a very good mood. So yes, he's having a little bit of a pity party, and been abandoned, and maybe rightfully so because of fear. So, this is where he's at on this, and it just takes a very short couple sentences where he just brings in this kind of, I'm down. And I like that because it does show that he was a real person and being revealed to, to us. Chapter 2, verse 1 You therefore, my son, be strong in, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars is tangled himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for mastery, yet is he not crowned except that he strives lawfully? The husbandman that labors must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding of all things. Let's stop there. So now Paul's turning his attention to Timothy. This, the, we're entering in the section where he's exhorting Timothy. The first part was his greetings and his little bit of a complaint. Now he turns to Timothy and says... You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love this idea be strong in the grace, because that is the only thing we can be strong in, truthfully. I may be trying to be strong in my own experiences, my own strength, my own knowledge, and God will make sure that if I'm trying to be strong in my own devices, God will make sure that they fail been my experience over and over again. Whenever I try to do things with my own strength, God arranges things to make sure that it doesn't work. Why? Because he doesn't want our flesh being exalted. He wants us to, re- to rely on him. And been there, done that so many times. I'm a planner. I'm an organizer. And I will organize myself out of every problem. But when God's standing against it, it doesn't work. And this is what God does over and over in our lives. If we try to do things our way, in our own strength, God stands in opposition against us. And our own strength will never get us victory. And he says, be strong in the grace of of Jesus Christ. His grace, unmerited favor. Be strong in the grace, and not by our own works, and that's what he's telling Timothy. He has told Timothy in the first book, and he goes, you had a blessing. You had God's anointing. Live in that. And this is the, the idea that we have to be. When we feel like we're being torn apart and under pressure, usually that's a good sign that I'm trying to do things my own way. I need to just relax and rest in faith. That doesn't mean I sit back and do nothing. It just means that God, I'm going to do the best I can and the results are in your ballpark. If I'm trying to do the best and I'm gonna I am going to do something, you know, and I'm a manager, I I go, here's my goal, I'm gonna get there. And I'm good at making my goal and getting there. But God, if it's not what God wants, I'm not going to get there no matter how good my plan is. And this is something that's very important. Be strong in the grace of Jesus. And recognize that it is His grace. Because this is something that is hard for us because when we're successful, sometimes we get to thinking, I did something somehow. And I've seen many pastors that have done this. They recognize that they can't do anything except through the power of God, and then they get successful. And they go, look what I have accomplished. No, God accomplished it, not you. And then you watch everything fall apart because they're getting proud. And God says, no, I'm going to show you that it wasn't you. It is very, success sometimes is the most dangerous thing that we can have happen to us. Because we start stop looking at God sometimes when we get successful. And going, God, I've arrived. I've made it. Look what I have accomplished, and God says, no, look what I have given you. And we always have to keep this in mind, this is all about God. It's all about His grace in our life. And the minute we start thinking that I've done anything, because even if I did have the skills to do something, who gave me the skills to do it in the first place? You know, and this is something that's hard because sometimes people go, well, I, I have great management skills, I have great training skills, so this is, look what I have been able to get accomplished. And the question is, who gave you those skills? Who gave you the training to be able to use those skills? And we need to be able to always focus back on God. And our pride so often takes place, <laughs> you know, you know and, and moves us into doing, you know, claiming that we've accomplished something and very dangerous place to be at when we're looking at that pride. Um, my own strength, whatever it is. And we look at people that get into building up their muscles and getting in shape and everything and think, they, think that they've arrived. It doesn't take long to, to not keep those muscles. God hardly used anybody that had skills for specific things. That... Very rarely will he use somebody with their own skills, because that makes it even worse. David was used to be a mighty king and a mighty leader and a mighty warrior and he started out as a shepherd, who just trusted God. Uh, you know, Most people when they picture Samson, you know, most people picture Samson as some muscle-bound uh, uh, person. I don't picture him as a muscle-bound person. I, I picture him as a, as a 95-pound weakling. Because the description of people is they were amazed at what he could do. And if you were Mr. America, Mr. America or Mr. Universe, nobody would be amazed that you broke, broke bands and, and, and carried, carried the walls out. But if you were the 95-pound weakling, and all of a sudden you broke bands and you carried off the, off the, the door frames, people are going to look like, how in the world did somebody do something like that? And, that's, and I don't know which one's the right picture, but I think it was more he was a weakling by sight. That God came on and he had strength that was amazing. Because if he was muscle-bound Mr. Universe, everybody'd go, "Of course he did all that stuff." And that's, so I don't picture him that way. I picture him as somebody who's very, at least average. Maybe not, you know, a 95-pound weakling, but an average person that people go on, "Wow, how did he? How did that happen?" Moses, you know, basically said, "I can't speak," which was a lie in the first place, but because all he did was speak from that point on. But he had no confidence in himself after he killed the, killed the Egyptian and ran away. Uh, but over and over again, you see these men that God has used, were people that had no real skills, or at least didn't think they did. Gideon called to be, called to be the great leader. You know, Where did you find him? He was threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding. And what did the angel say? You know, you valiant, valiant man. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure he was looking around like, who are you talking to? It can't be me that you're talking to. I'm in this wine press scared to death of the, of the Midianites and you're, and you're calling me a valiant man? <laughs> and over and over in the scriptures you see the people that God used. And you read the biographies of the people God used. And you're going, wow, God, if you can use them and you use me. And that should be what we see when we see these people. Unfortunately, what do we usually see? We look at the ends of their life when they're being used greatly by God, and and everything's going good, and we don't remember where they started at. I love George Mueller, the founder of the orphanages in in Bristol, England. But if you read his life, he started out as a scoundrel and a manipulator. He manipulated people out of their out of their funds and out of money and was was terrible. How did God use him? As somebody who developed everything by prayer. And he was a man that could have easily said well God I can just go back to my old habits. I can I can manipulate money and really cover these these uh, orphanages. And you know what? I believe he probably suffered with that idea sometimes. When there's no food on the table and all he's got is prayer. In the back of his mind had to be, well, God, I could, I could tell these stories, I could, I could manipulate the emotions, and I can get these bills paid with no problem. Now he'd, he'd outgrown it, but he, that's the way he was early on in life, before he got saved. How many times does God give us tests right in that area? Now, and George Mueller, by all sight did a good job of leaving that behind. But how long did it take him to get there? If you read his biography, it's an amazing, long, long story about how he got where he got. And usually God was was pointing out, we'll use us in our weakest area. Why? Because he doesn't want us to get to the end and say, look what I did. God, you know, I, I came with so much skills that this is why this has been successful. And I have seen over the years that God has put the strangest people in charge, of, in charge of ministries. And you're going, God, are you sure you want that person running this ministry? That person's going to run that ministry. And then you watch them run a very successful ministry because they're fully dependent on God because they also know that they don't belong there. And they run very successful things because they're going, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to reach out. Now, the further on you get, the more God will use you in strength because you've learned to walk with God and trust God. But when you first start, it's not a strength at all. When I first started thinking about being a pastor, you're talking about somebody who's an introvert that doesn't like talking to people. All right? And he goes, you're going to be a pastor. I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> Last thing I want to do is go talk to people, minister to people. I even took, when I was in college, I took classes on interpersonal communication because I wanted to learn how to communicate with people better because I hated communicating with people. Standing in front of a group, what normally drives people you know, crazy, I had no problem being in front of a group. I'd been in front of groups since I was 14 years old, teaching Bible studies, teaching, teaching groups. To talk to people one-on-one is difficult. Even to this day, it's difficult. I'm better at it. But I know that that's God working through me on those. God uses us where we're weak. And then when we, when we are called, a lot of times we're going, uh, God, I don't think so. I can't do that. And God says, of course you can't do it. But through me, you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's important for us to always understand. His strength will get us through whatever he's calling us to do. And sometimes it's tough to go through those things, and we just have to learn to trust Him. And trusting God is hard to do at times, because especially when He's saying, I just want you to follow me into this very hard area of your life. Uh, you know, and what does it mean to trust? Well, we think about a young child you know getting ready to jump into the arms of their parents or you know fall into the arms of their parents you know when everything says don't do it and they decide their parents are strong enough that's what the kind of trust God wants us to do to step off the cliff because he's there to catch us and he's not going to miss and if we jump off the wrong cliff he'll still catch us might might say you kind of might want to pay attention to which cliff you're jumping off but I'm here All right, Uh, But we want to be able to understand this process. Be strong in the grace of Jesus. Because that's all we really have is the grace of God. The grace of Jesus. Then his commandment to him is, The things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit you to faithful men who shall be able to teach others. This is the most critical thing for all of us as Christians, especially leaders take what we learn, teach it to others so that they can teach it to others. Without that process happening Christianity would die because we need that process. So we pour into other people and then we hope and expect that they will pour into other people as well. I have poured into my children from all of my life and now my children are getting to pour into their children and other people around them and then those will pour into the, those around them and my, you know from the church and the Bible studies that I've taught to taught, i poured into people and hope that they now will take and pour out to their family and friends and, and relatives and keep moving forward truth and this is what Paul is telling Timothy Timothy and he could probably say Timothy I poured into you take the things I taught you all right? And he taught Timothy and Titus were his two primary that we know of that he poured into. Now he poured into lots and lots of people. Jesus poured into the 12 disciples primarily and even in that group he had three that he really focused with. But, and he had about five or 600 beyond them that, that he poured into. And then whole crowds every once in a while. But it is important for us to say and I've mentioned this several times, who has discipled us, or who is discipling us? And that's important, we all have to have a discipler. Somebody that we can go to when we have questions and and that we use to be the one that teaches us. Now we do get to a place where we don't need the discipler as much, but they are the one that we go to and ask our questions to. There's about three people in my life that if I have questions, I will go to and ask them my questions. All right. Do I need them every single day and every single week anymore? No. I've been walking with God for 52 years and I have a pretty strong grip on what I believe and what I know. But every once in a while, I'll come across something that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'll do all my research on it and it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or I I think I know what it is, but I'm not absolutely sure. And I'll go bounce it off them and take their opinion. Then we have to have people that we are discipling. Who is it that we are teaching in our life? And that can be any number of people, friends, neighbors, children, uh, relatives, somebody that we are pouring out knowledge and truth. Why is that important? Because if we don't pour it out, it will stagnate. Why is the Dead Sea dead? is because there is no outlet for the Dead Sea. It gets plenty of minerals, plenty of things that should keep it alive. It gets plenty of water coming into it. And it is dead because it has no outlet. And we will do the same thing. If we do not pass out what we're giving from the scriptures, it will become death and stagnant, even in us. And we need to be careful about it because we're not learning just to get knowledge that's why we're learning we're in the we're doing it for the wrong reason all right I study the scriptures so that I can be able to teach others and this isn't the only word that I teach I mean I'm teaching at the at the prison I teach at the I teach with different groups that I talk at talk with I bring God into virtually every conversation that I have because that's who I am that is what I like to do I want to teach others and I'm hoping that those that get taught will reach out and teach others. Because that's my whole goal. If all I'm doing is teaching a bunch of people that aren't reaching out to other people, then I'm doing a very bad job. And I don't want that to be the case. I want to see people reaching out. And that's the one thing I do know is happening in this church is people are reaching out and touching other people over time. Now some people are better at it than others. Don't get me wrong, I understand. Not everybody's gonna be able to reach out to four, five, six, seven people. But there should be at least one person that each person is reaching out to and saying this is who I'm trying to talk to. All right? And this is what he's telling Timothy. Timothy, take what you have learned, teach it to men that are going to teach other men. And then those men are supposed to teach men that will teach other men and it keeps going (laughs) in that process. And we grow. And this is how a line starts developing, that over time, people keep reaching out. We've seen this with various pastors that they've taught a bunch of men, who then teach a bunch of men, who teach a bunch of men. And then a denomination starts out. Um, You know, the Methodist Church started with Charles and, uh, yeah, Charles and his brother, (laughs) the Wesley brothers. And they raised up a whole army of people to be pastors who followed in their footsteps, their teaching. And they taught a bunch of men, and they taught a bunch of men. And they developed an entire denomination called the the Methodist Denomination. Now, unfortunately, they would be upset with where the Methodist denomination has gone to in recent days, but they did this process. And we've seen this through different other churches where a pastor has come up and trained people who have trained people, who have trained people, and developed entire denominations, even though some of them don't like to be called denominations, they are denominations. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy, teach others what you have been taught. Don't let it stagnate, don't let it just be knowledge, teach it to others. And to be honest with you, the best way to learn something is to teach because you're gonna to have to study, make sure you understand it. If you're gonna be a good teacher, you have to understand what it is you're teaching, which means you have to study it deeper than, than anybody else's out there. And one of the things I've had to teach teachers over the years is you're gonna do a lot of study, but most of the study is for you, not for the one you're teaching. All right. And I've shared with a couple of people, when I get ready to do these Bible studies, I spend anywhere from three to ten hours per, per one hour Bible study. Do I try to teach you three to ten hours worth of study time? No. Uh, because if we did, we'd be here a long time. And most of you would get bored if, you, <laughs> if we went through everything that I have chased down. It is something I need to do because I have to thoroughly understand what it is that I'm going to teach on to be able to do an adequate job teaching it. So you're going to take whatever you're learning when you're when you're teaching, you're going to study it a little deeper, and you're going to pass it on to other people. And I hope there's times when people get caught up with it and say, I want to study more of what was being with that one point. And it may just be one point that really got your attention. You go, I need to know more about that, and that's good. I'm hoping that my teaching encourages and enlightens and, in, and gets people to want to go deeper in some aspect of, the, of their knowledge because I'm not able to teach everything that you need to know. And that would scare me if I was the only one that was teaching you what you needed to know. Uh, every once in a while, you know, I've got paper and pen in my car, and every once in a while when I'm listening to these pastors, I'll write something scribbled into notes that I can barely read when I get back to the house. You know, need to check this out, basically. They said this, they quoted this. What version of the Bible did they use when they quoted this that I've never heard? (laughs) All right, and so little things that I will note down and say, I want to check deeper. I want to understand more about what they said. I want to investigate what they've said. And this is what Paul wanted the churches to do. He encouraged them, be like the Bereans who have examined what I have taught to see if it was scriptural. And he encouraged that. Why? Because he wanted them to go deeper than whatever he taught them and verify what it is. And here he's telling Timothy, teach men who can teach others and encourage them to teach. Then he goes in, you therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now this is an interesting statement. Be a good soldier. This is a terminology that the church is trying to eradicate from its language, that we are in wars, that we're in soldiers, that we're on battles, because Satan doesn't like the idea that we're prepared for war. We are in spiritual warfare, and we need to keep this in mind all the time. We used to have lots and lots of hymns about onward Christian soldier and, you know, be be ready for the battles and all these different things that we had because we understood we were in a battle. But people don't like the idea of battle terminology anymore, uh, especially in the day uh, we have today where men are not part of the church very much, you know. And they're softening out the language of the church because there's so many women in the church and you don't want to offend the women. And the more we effeminate, make the church effeminate, the less we have men being drawn into the church. And that's a sad thing. Because God wants us to be strong. He wants us to be ready for battle. He wants us to, to engage an enemy. And the language that men would respond to there's a reason to come to church. There's a reason that, you know, something we can do. It's not just about sit down, shut up, and listen. Uh, and being encouraged to go out. And he's saying, be a good soldier. And this was in a day when, when you were drafted into the military. In our day, you get drafted in and you're, you get to have all kinds of time off and move around. You still have to go to battle if you're drafted. But during the Roman time, once you were conscripted into the military, you were there until you were finally released. You did not get to go home. You, know, you did not have rest and relaxation periods of time. Uh, you were in battle, and your rest and relaxation was when you weren't on the front line. You were eating dinner at the, at the camp. And that was as much rest as you got. You didn't get to go home you did not get to go, you know, 100 miles off the front line to to rest and relax. You were conscripted and you were kept in the battle. Much as the British navy would do. You you were conscripted. You were down on the docks at the wrong places and you were you were you know taken to the ship sometimes without your uh, knowledge because they would knock you out if you were put up too much of a resistance. And you woke up in a ship. And any time they came back to England, you were not allowed to leave the ship. Because you were conscripted. They knew that you would not come back to the ship. So this was the type of thing he's talking about. Be a good soldier. You're you're, You're in the army. Be a good soldier. Be the best that you can be. Shanghai. Shanghai, yeah. So he's saying, be a good soldier. He says, no man that war, wars entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him that has chosen him to be a soldier. So here we have this idea that serves as a soldier. If you're serving as a soldier, you don't entangle yourself with what's going on in life. You cannot be, you cannot be going into battle worrying about everything else in your life. And that's basically what he's telling us we are soldiers for Christ is where is our focus where is our worry are we looking at what he wants or everything else about our life and this is where most of us get into the most trouble now when we're married and Paul even mentions this you know when if you're married it's hard to serve God some to some degree because you've got to take care of your wife and if you don't take care of your wife you're not doing your job as a husband And yet, you're God's servant and his warrior, so you're supposed to be taking care of God. And then add a family on top of that. It gets to be very difficult, and we start having divided loyalties. And this is where things get very difficult for us in living Christ. Christ is to be number one, but our family has to be important enough to be taken care of. And I've experienced it, times when there's things that I wanted to do for God but knew that I could not do for God because I have a family that needs to be taken care of. If I was single, I would be doing things totally different than what I'm doing now because I wouldn't have a family to have to take care of and I could do the th- everything that I feel God wants done. But because I've got a family, I've also got to think about the family. And this is something that is important because there is that divided loyalties. and. And Paul is telling him, hey, if you're, if you're really at war, you can't be worried about other things. Paul, we don't know what happened to his wife. We know he was a Pharisee, so he had to have been married. But we don't know if his wife had died. She divorced him when he went crazy and became a Christian. Uh, we don't know. All we know is that he was able to travel the rest of his life after he got saved. So at some point, something happened to that wife. We don't know exactly what it was. But if he was married during all that period of time, then he was very much not a good husband. All right? If she hadn't died her hadn't divorced him, he was not being a good husband, never being home. And there's no record of her being with him anywhere in time. So we don't know what happened. Many people believe that you know, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee, uh, and she probably married an up-and-coming Pharisee looking forward to somebody who was going to be... You know, top dog in the Sanhedrin, might have just said, okay, you're not who I married, I'm, I'm leaving you, or she passed away, and we don't, we don't know for sure, nobody knows, there's no historic record of her anywhere, uh, but having been a Pharisee, we know we had to be married, because that was one of the requir- requir- requirements to be a Pharisee, <laughs> He had to be married, uh, so he's saying, do not be entangled with the affairs of this world, And how many times do we get entangled with the affairs of this world? (laughs) Family, work, you know, just the little things that we need to do to survive in this world. You know, we, we have to work, we have to put time into work, but we have to balance our work with our requirements for God. And this is something that I've heard people tell me so many times, well, I'm so busy at work, I don't have time for church. Well, when will you have time for God? I don't know when I'm done with work. All right, so when you're 65 years old, you'll have time for God. Well, probably not, because there'll be some other excuse. And this is the thing I have learned over the years. At every age, there'll be excuses not to serve God. Every age has an excuse not to serve God if we don't make him a priority to serve. You know, and this is very important. And I've told this over and over to people. It doesn't matter what age you are. And I've gone through the whole list. You know, when you're you're, you're a teenager, you're too busy, you know, with school and, and trying to get everything and sports and everything. Uh, you're in your 20s. You're either in college or getting started on a job. You know, uh, you know, and it's just taken so much time out of you. And then you're, you get about 30, and your kids are starting to get old enough that you have to spend time with your kids. And then you get in your 40s, and you're probably in the middle management and everything, and you're just too busy with work. 50s, well, you know, God, I've got my grandkids and everybody. I've got 60, God, I'm getting ready to retire. I've got to really get everything in place. 65, God, I'm just too tired to serve you anymore. (laughs) And from there in, it's just I'm too tired. I don't have the energy. Always an excuse to why we can't serve. And the question is, are we going to make him a priority and reach out and serve? Whatever that service might be. For me, it was always teaching. Some people it is just to use their skills and talents to help others. Whatever it might be is so important, but making God's service a priority and not getting so wrapped up in what goes on in this world and saying, God can't serve you because I'm tied up with this world. God, I know you want me on that front line there for, for you know, a while, but hey, I've just got too much to do you know, taking care of these other things and it happens over and over and over again I've seen many 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 people say that same thing over and over but you know the greatest thing is God uses busy people who prioritize him and if you look at what people do usually people who are extremely busy are the ones that are carving out time for God very rarely is it somebody who does nothing but serving God now they're out there there's a handful of them but that's very rare I've never had that much time to, to, to carve out. But I'm going, God, you know, I could be doing this, but where I can serve you, I'm going to serve you and make it a priority to it. In verse 5, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Now this one sounds very funny to us in, in English, but basically he's talking about the Olympic Games and, and everything they had certain rules that you had to train and do things correctly. And if you've ever run track or anything, you know some of the rules that are involved in track. Uh, if you're in a race where you stay in the lane, you had to stay in your lane. If you're doing the path ta- uh, pass, you had to do it within a certain stretch and you had to do it the right way. And uh, if you're you know, jumping over things, you had to do it the right way. And Val is basically reminding him, hey, if you're in the Olympics, you have to do things the right way. You you can't decide that okay I'm not going to go around that corner I'm going to run a half I'm going to run across the field, <laughs> all right? He goes you won't win even though you got to the finish line first you're not going to win because you didn't follow the rules, and those of us who've played sports understand there are rules involved with any sport, all right? If you're playing baseball and you hit the ball and decide to run to third base and back to home base home plate you're not going to get a home run. You know you had to go around all all the bases. All right? And you have to run the right direction. Uh, you can't just hit the ball and run to second base and say, I'm here. You'll just throw the ball to first base and you're out. Because you're not playing by the rules. All right, uh, I have no clue what the rules to rugby is. It just looks like a bunch of people trying to kill each other. But, but I'm sure there's rules involved with it. Uh, you know, but when I, played foot, when I played football, there was lots and lots of rules involved in football. You know. Uh, And he's telling them the same thing. When you're striving for masteries, you're striving to be the one that is on top of something. You've got to do it by the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, there's consequences. All right? Namely, you won't be crowned in this case. And uh, so he's being very straightforward. Timothy, do it God's way how many times do we not try to do things God's way we do it the world's way we try to shortcut it there are no shortcuts in in ministering to people when I'm teaching people there is no shortcut I, I can't open people's brains and dump the knowledge in there and keep it there I have to keep teaching keep teaching keep teaching keep teaching and eventually it might make sense to them And then what I'm finding out here is when it finally starts making sense and people really start understanding, God moves them away for some strange reason and gives me somebody else to start all over with. And I hope that when they leave, they're doing doing the same thing and and ministering to other people. Uh, But we have to do it God's way. And it's so easy for us to want to shortcut. We all like to shortcut things. What's the easiest way to get from, from, from here to there? And God says, "Well, here's my plan," and He maps it out for us. And go, well, God, it would be much easier to go this way. <laughs> and God goes, "No, it's not easier to do that. If it was, I'd have had you do it that way." And how many times do we suffer trying to figure out how to follow God? And we just always tend to want to do it our way. To, you know, God, I want the short way to get there. I want the easy way. And what looks like the easy way isn't always the easy way. If anybody has done any hiking and you follow trails, have you ever left the trail because you say, I don't want to go around this direction? Because the trail is right over there. I can see where the trail is coming back. And usually when you go that way, you find out why the trail went around whatever it was that you were, you know, that it went around. You know, a ditch, a cliff, or. You know, a bog. You know, you know who knows what you're going to find. And we do that to God so often. God, I really don't want to go around whatever this is that you want me to go around. I'm going right over there, so I'm going to go straight. And God says, No, I really want you to go around that. And we go, No, I see where I'm going. I'm going that way. And we walk into the quicksand and the bogs and the into the cliffs or whatever it is, you know, the mountain, whatever it is that, we're, that He's trying to walk us around. And then what do we do? We blame God for the, for the obstacles. God, what are all these obstacles here for? He goes, well, I told you to do this. <laughs> you chose this, now you've gotta deal with the obstacles. We need to be very careful. When we do things our way, we cannot be blaming God. And that is our tendency. God, I'm not gonna do things your way, and then when we get into trouble, God, it's all your fault, what'd you let me do this for? You know, why did you put all these obstacles in my way? And we need to be very careful about that. And I do it myself. Go my own way and then, you know, usually I'm pretty good about not blaming God, but, you know, complaining. God, there's a whole lot of obstacles this way. And it's my fault. But yet I'm tending to blame God for the obstacles that I caused because I went the wrong way. Not listened. And God is right there saying, I've got a plan for you. How many times do we not listen to his plan? How many times when things get tough do we avoid the tough problems and just turn around and go the other direction? I've got family members who every time things get tough they move, thinking they're going to solve their problems by moving. The only problem is their problems are caused by them so they take their problems wherever they go and they have the same problems all over again, plus the loss of money and moving and all the other stuff that was involved with it. You know, how many times do we try to avoid the problems in our life and then find out that we were the problem in the first place? I've done that more than once. You know, find out that I'm the problem and have to change me. or let God change me. And here we strive by the rules. Then he goes one more thing, he says, the husbandman that labors must be the first partaker of the fruits. In other words, if you're working to grow things and, and build things, you're the farmer. The farmer gets to have the first fruits of the harvest. You know, they get to eat whatever they want from their, from their produce. Now this is something that is also for us as laborers for, for God. He says, you're laboring for me. You're going to get the best benefits out of this. You're going to get the fruit for it. I love watching people grow for, for Christ. And knowing that I had at least a small part in it. I know it's not me making them grow or anything, but I have that. I've been giving knowledge. I've been pouring into them, and to watch them grow is a great blessing. To see them turn around and give to others and pour out is a great blessing. Knowing that I had a small part. And you know what? I hope that they exceed and go beyond me. Just as I do with my kids and, and everybody else I disciple, I hope that everybody that I teach goes out and does a better job than I do. Because I don't think I do a great job most of the time, so if they can all go out and do better than me, that would be great. And that is, my, that is the, the idea. I am bringing in a small harvest, and I'm hoping that that harvest will then grow and be even better at the next, the next group that goes out. And you know, there's things in the back of my mind that I'm considering and doing and, and trying to get accomplished. And maybe some of them will work, maybe some of them won't. But I just want to see people take what they've been taught and, and grow. I don't know what's going on with our messages going out over the, over the internet. There may be people getting hold of that and really ministering elsewhere around the world. And that's great. Little bits of pieces that we will find out when we get to heaven that we're done. And this is the news. Consuming the harvest. We reach out to people and we're going to be rewarded for it. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and finding out what rewards are there. And you know what? Most of my rewards are probably not going to be these times I talk as an official pastor and a teacher in the the room. It'll be the times when I had little conversations with people and just put a little nugget in there or encourage them to do something for God. And maybe they did. And this is the beauty of this. Because it's all God and the Holy Spirit working for us and then He rewards us for what He does. I like God's plan. I really do. He does the work and I get the rewards. And, And the funny thing is, Satan's view on this is, let's make everybody give us the reward. You now, how lazy are so many people? I've, I've watched as a manager my employees work harder to not work than they would have, worked, would have worked to be doing the work and getting home. Literally, I've watched them work harder not working than they would have if they had worked. And I've even told, them, told a couple of them, I go, you know, you'd be all done if you'd actually done the work. You know, instead of dragging the rag over the same three inch space for, for the last three hours, you would have been done if you have moved that rag a little bit you know, and walked down, the, walked down the entire table. Now you still have to do the work. Uh, but I have watched people over and over and over work harder at not working than actually get out and do a job. And I don't know, I've always been the person I feel good when I do a good job. I feel good when I have applied myself to a job. And helped people get better by, by getting it done. Taking care of people's needs. And here Paul is encouraging them to be able to do all of this. And we're going to stop here. Lord, we ask you to bless this day. Lord, help us to learn to serve you full-heartedly, seeking you in all that we do and guide and lead us and and give us opportunities to work for you and to share you and, and eyes to see the work that we're doing and we thank you in Jesus name Amen listening friend do you know where you'll go after you die without the gift of Jesus it will be an eternity in hell without God good works will not get you there for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast to spend eternity with God we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.